Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the, the be things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostle, <coughs> the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. <clears throat> and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young man rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young man came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. The word of the Lord. A reading from the first letter of St. John, beginning in the third chapter, the 11th verse. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. 
For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the spirit whom he has given us. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I speak to you in the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Well, this morning I want to start with our passage from the first letter of John. If you can turn there to our second lesson. In particular, I want to look at verses 19 and 20, if you can locate those, where it says, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. These verses, to be honest, have always seemed a little confusing to me. I've never really done a deep dive on them, so I did this week. I've heard, I've heard these verses used a lot by believers in a particular way. And that is in the way of interpreting the word heart in both of these verses, appears three times, interpreting the word heart to be referring to our conscience, our conscience. Scholar Colin Cruz observes that this is the most common way these two verses are interpreted. And if understood this way, these verses are seen as an encouragement, in particular, an encouragement that if we are condemning ourselves beating up on ourselves about something, then we can take comfort, at least, that God does not condemn us. That we should reassure ourselves that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, as Romans 8 says. Now, you guys know that I'm big on learning to give ourselves compassion for our screw-ups and our failures, not to say we shouldn't repent and confess our sins, but when we employ self-condemnation and self-hatred on ourselves, as many of us are so prone to do, it rarely actually brings about better results or any long-term change. Self-compassion is a lot more effective than beating up on ourselves. And it's absolutely true that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus before God. Paul writes as much in Romans 8. However, the problem with using these verses from 1 John, with interpreting them in this way, is that it's just not what this passage is about. So people may proof text those verses to kind of say the same thing as Romans 8.1, that, that there's no condemnation for us and we should encourage ourselves, have self-compassion. But that just doesn't happen to be what these verses are about. And Cruz explains that there are some textual reasons that, that this isn't, that's not what these verses are about. And I'm not going to get too deep into the weeds on those. You can look at the footnotes if you want to. I'll just say one is that 
there are separate Greek words for heart and for conscience, okay? And so out of, there are 153 instances in the New Testament for the word heart, cardia in Greek, and not a single one of them refers to conscience. Why? Because there's another word for conscience. So to interpret the words heart here three times to mean conscience is to disagree with the rest of the New Testament use of that word. But even more significantly than kind of Greek technical stuff, to interpret these verses in this way, one has to completely divorce them from their context and presume that in these two verses, John, the writer, is making some sort of digression, like, yeah, I'm talking about this, but oh, by the way, and then going back to his topic, right? So that's what I want to get into now. I want to seek to understand what, what these verses mean in light of their context. But first, just a brief word about 1 John as a whole. The letter that we call 1 John is believed to have been written by St. John, the disciple and apostle of Jesus and the author of our fourth gospel. Although like, unlike many other New Testament letters that start out with the author identifying himself, right, as Peter or Paul, for example, this letter never explicitly says who's writing it. But as a letter written to some churches in the late first century, its purpose seems to be to expand on what was written in the Gospel of John. In particular, to expand or be a commentary on John's telling of the Last Supper when Jesus gave his disciples a new command or mandate, right? Where we get the word from Monday Thursday. The command to love one another as he has loved them. I've reprinted this uh, in your bulletin insert from John chapter 13, if you just need a refresher. We just sang about it or tried our best to. This is the focus of this passage from 1 John today. It opens, for example, in verse 11 saying, for this is the message that you would have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And later, toward the end, in verse 23, it says, This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. That's what this whole passage is about. So clearly, this passage is exhorting brothers and sisters in the church, fellow believers, to love one another. Okay? Then in verse 12, John mentions a counterexample, you might say, by warning the believers in the church not to be like Cain. You may recall that in Genesis 4, Cain killed his biological brother Abel. But after Cain did that, God confronted Cain, saying, where is Abel, your brother? I mean, God knows, but he's asking him, see what he says. And Cain responded, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? In other words, Cain did not believe, or his defense was, that he didn't have any responsibility to or for his brother Abel. And the, the writer of 1 John doesn't want believers within the churches he's writing to to make a similar mistake of believing that they don't have a responsibility to love one another. To the contrary, John goes on to suggest in this passage that the very mark of a believer 
The sign that someone is a citizen of the kingdom of God and living into eternal life is the love that they would show for their fellow believers in Christ. That is the the mark of it that he singles out. Skipping down to verse 14, he writes, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now, love, of course, is often misunderstood, particularly these days, but probably all, but for all time. Love is misunderstood as a feeling or as a mere expression of, of words. But biblical love is all about action, right? Actions speak louder than words. And John reminds his readers of this in verse 16, saying, by this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, right? Not that Jesus was like, hey, I love you. No, that he actually, in action, loved us. Therefore, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Jesus did, as we said last week, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In other words, biblical love costs something, right? Words don't typically cost that. And so John then, he gives a very concrete example of what it means for believers to love one another, right? I mean, we, if we think, well, do we love our fellow believers here in the church, parish of St. Matthias? Oh, yeah, sure, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, let's see if it meets John's standard, right? He gives a concrete example of what love means, that to love one another is being prepared to share, believers bring, being prepared to share their material possessions with those fellow believers who are in need in the church. He says in verse 17, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word and talk, but in deed and in truth. So John is saying it's not enough for believers in the church to say we love one another or to be kind of nice to one another. He says eternal living is going to be marked by deeds of sacrifice. It's getting kind of hot in here. (laughs) Right? This is a high demand. So if this is everything that John's talking about leading up to these verses in question, verses 19 and 20, then a much better explanation for those verses than the common interpretation is that in 19 and 20, John is confronting the possibility, likelihood even, of our hearts being hesitant to help our brothers and sisters in need. So the word heart here refers not to a believer's conscience, but to our sinful heart, right? The part of us that's still undergoing God's transformation that might, if we feel any inclination, a calling to help, to be generous to a brother or sister in need, that heart might condemn that idea, right? As being irresponsible, as being really unnecessary. That's that's too much as being reckless, as putting ourselves, right? If we're talking like financially, right? To help someone else in need, that sinful heart of us might say, wait a second, what's that do to to you, your situation, your bank account? So 
So to explain this in another way, the way I would explain, interpret these verses I've put on your insert there toward the bottom, I wrote 1 John Proposal, is that it's really saying that whenever our heart is unsure or fearful about being generous to a brother or sister in need, we should reassure ourselves that God is greater than our fears, right? The fear being that we're not gonna have anything left for ourselves, right? That we gotta hoard money or whatever it is. Why? Because God knows everything, including our needs. And according to this interpretation, the next two verses make a lot more sense. There in 21, John writes, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, right? We have confidence before God. In other words, if we feel the call to be generous with our brother or sister and we're not freaking out about it and fearful about it, great, hallelujah, right? We have confidence before God. We are, we are walking in faith, verse 22, because whatever we ask, we know that we receive from him. Why? Because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. John's saying, if our heart doesn't condemn us, count it all joy, because that means we have confidence before God. We're trusting in him as our provider, right? That's not just lip service. We're trusting that God cares for our needs so we can risk some of what we have. And, whatever, and we're, we're trusting that whatever we ask, we receive from God, especially if the risk we're taking is to keep his commandments and do what pleases him by loving our brother, our sister. Now, John isn't insisting that Christians with means should give to those without means in all circumstances or no questions asked. What he is indicating, though, is that, that believers in the church have a responsibility to one another, which I'm guessing is a notion that feels pretty uncomfortable to most all of us. It feels uncomfortable to me. I mean, I love you guys in word, right? No, I love you guys, but like, do I love you guys like John's talking about? Right? Seriously. In fact, if, it, if you don't feel uncomfortable with this, I, you may not be paying attention. Right? But if we're tempted to doubt, you know, maybe John's, maybe John's being radical. Maybe John's woke up there, right? Maybe John's being crazy today. Me, John. If we're tempted to doubt that this is the correct interpretation of the passage, perhaps even now our, our, our sinful hearts are condemning this notion, right, that God would desire those in the church to share their material resources with one another who are in need, If we're, if, we're, if we're tempted to doubt that this is correct, we need only to turn to our passage from Acts today, where the end of chapter four describes the newborn church, only a few months old, doing just what John is talking about. Verse 32 says, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. Rather, they had everything in common. Now to verse 34. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold, sold them, 
They sold their, their lands or houses and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. Wow. Whew. The final two verses of the chapter then to give a shining example of this, right? It continues saying, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, Verse 37, he sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Can you imagine this? I mean, seriously. I'm guessing that for every single one of us, it is hard to imagine anything like this happening in the church today. And not just in our church, in any church, right? So why is that? Why does the emphasis of today's 1 John passage and the dynamic of generosity that we see among believers in Acts 4, why does that feel so foreign to us? Well, the primary reason is that Western society today, which almost all of us have lived in our whole lives and never known anything different, Western society today is the most individualistic society in the history of the world. And that's not hyperbole. What do I mean by that, though? We hear this word individual. What does that mean? Well, Joseph Hellerman, who's a New Testament scholar and author who writes about the family dynamic at the ancient church, he defines our, our, our individualism as, quote, our insistence that the rights and satisfaction of ourselves as individuals takes priority, must take priority, over any group that we may belong to, including the church. Let me say that again. Individualism, the individualism that, or these are the waters we swim in. None of us, frankly, have ever experienced probably anything different. Don't even think about this stuff. It's our insistence that the rights and satisfaction of ourselves as individuals must take priority over any group we may belong to, including the church, right? That's just the world we live in. Consequently, Hellerman says that nearly all churches in America are characterized by an unwillingness of members to commit themselves deeply to their respective church. He explains that for some, this means church hopping. For most, it means keeping the church at arm's length, right? Not that they don't attend church, but it means living as if the individual's life is primary and that the church's life is secondary and pretty far down secondary. Contrast that, though, with what we see in the New Testament. Hellerman says that what best accounts for the expectations of the church in the New Testament is the model of the Mediterranean family. Now, I'm sure any of us who have read much of the New Testament at all have noticed how often the language of kind of kinship, brothers, is used to refer to fellow believers, right? I mean, the word brothers is all over the New Testament, right? And it really means brothers and sisters. In fact, in today's passage from 1 John, the word brothers appears seven times in the first seven verses, right? It's everywhere. But Hellerman 
says that what we tend to misunderstand when we read that today is that in the ancient Mediterranean family, the closest family bond on the same generation level was not the bond of marriage. It was the bond between siblings. Now this is, again, like getting our minds around this, imagining this is tough, I get that, right? I'll try to talk more slowly. Um, corresponding to this, right? That the, the, the sibling relationship was more important than the husband-wife relationship. Corresponding to this, the most treacherous act of disloyalty that a man could commit in ancient family was not betraying his wife. Right? Not that that was okay. It's just the, the, the most treacherous act was betraying his brother. For a man to betray his brother in ancient times was viewed as more egregious than betraying his wife, and it really wasn't even close. Now, I'm not saying that in itself is good, right? I'm just saying that's the way ancient families were, and that's the example of being drawn on in the New Testament, right? I'm not saying that, that this hierarchy of loyalties, a sibling over a spouse, is kind of what we should be doing, Right? This doesn't mean that for those of us who are married, we should be closer with our sibling than we are with our spouse. No, that's not the point. What it does mean, though, is that when the New Testament uses that sibling terminology of brothers and sisters to describe God's expectation for the relationship among believers in the church, it means that there is a lot more weight behind that than we probably grasp with our 21st century conceptions of sibling loyalty applied to it, right? My sibling lives on the other side of the country, right? And as a consequence of kind of not really appreciating the weightiness of that word brother and referring to our fellow believers in the church, as a consequence, it blinds us to our potential for repeating the sin of Cain unwittingly by being indifferent to the plights of our fellow members in the church. And essentially saying, like Cain said to God, am I really my brother's keeper? Right? I know I'm my spouse's keeper if I have one. I know I'm my kid's keeper if I have some. Am I really my brother's and sister's and the church's keeper? Perhaps if, if all this time that we've been reading scripture, we understood the implications of the New Testament consistently referring to fellow believers as in, in the church as brothers and sisters, then the, 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 the demand that emerges from 1 John 3, right, when properly interpreted, and this acts for example of sacrifice among believers in the other early church, perhaps it wouldn't be so surprising if we had really grasped what brothers and sisters was, meant. However, humans' resistance to being deeply committed to the church, to the body of Christ, right? I'm not talking about to me or the leader of the church. I'm talking about to fellow believers. The human resistance to that is not just a problem of modernity of today. Not at all. Why, Why do we know this? Well, we know this because long before the rise of this modern individualism that is the way that we tend to live, 
the book of Acts presents us with a husband and wife named Ananias and Sapphira, right? After Joseph called Barabbas, sold his field and laid it at the, the proceeds at the apostles' feet, Acts starts talking about this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, who pretended to follow suit, pretended to do what Joseph called Barabbas did. They sell a piece of property and lay the proceeds at the apostles' feet, right? The apostles are the ones who are presumably gonna discern how to distribute it appropriately. But in contrast to Joseph Barabbas, Ananias and Sapphira are deceptive and they hold some of the proceeds back. Well, the Lord knows this, of course. He knows everything. And so the Lord proceeds to expose the couple's deception through Peter. And then the Lord takes the couple out. I don't know if y'all caught that. <laughs> Did y'all catch that when we were reading? I mean, it's like, bam! <laughs> Three hours later, bam! Right? I mean, he's cutting these... This, husband and wife down. <laughs> now, three years ago, I did a more in-depth exegesis of this story, but for today's purposes, I want us to understand that Ananias and Sapphira, they provide an example of a common temptation that arises in marriage, that arises from the union of a man and woman in marriage. And that temptation is what Willie Jennings describes as the temptation of the sovereign couple. The sovereign couple. What does he mean by that? We see from all the potential goods that can come from being married, the coupling of marriage can often, unfortunately, increase the man and woman's belief and the illusion that their life is manageable. Marriage can increase our belief in the illusion that our lives are manageable, that it is manageable on our own, apart from God's help. Jennings further explains this mentality, potential mentality of the couple, that, that together they imagine they can do anything, right? And we, look, need, we need to look no further than Adam and Eve as an example of this dynamic, right? Interesting to wonder what would have happened if there had only been Adam or only been Eve, right? They kind of don't help each other too much there. Right? Clearly, there was a dynamic between Adam and Eve having one, that having one another meant God was a little bit more dispensable than they might have thought on their own. Jennings calls this the narcissism of the two made one. The belief that together as a couple, they could have it all in this world. Which is represented by their eating of the fruit. That they could have it all and enjoy life and creation in this world apart from God. And that it would be good. Jennings even suggests that it is within the context of, of such coupling, the marriage relationship, that, that the worship of possessions and money often comes most fully to life. It's like gets a steroid shot, right? I mean, just watch a Home Depot commercial, right? You're not seeing a single person in that commercial, right? You're seeing the, the man and wife and their two and a half kids making the picket fence or whatever, right? The dream, 
the dream, supposedly. See, we do well to remember that marriage is a fallen institution like any other human institution. It was only in Jesus that the power of the married couple was seized and given an outward focus, right? A good purpose, a better purpose, to be a sign and witness of his love for the church. But as Jennings says, the power of coupling to to carry our hopes and dreams of life together in a, a prosperous future, Jennings says that is meant to be laid at the feet of the apostles, figuratively speaking, right? to be consecrated for the glory of God. To, we're supposed to call, call BS, to say that is a lie, what the world says is possible for us as a couple because we wanna submit those purposes to the Lord and to his goals for us, not our own little American dreams or whatever. But Ananias and Sapphira did not do this, right? Their marriage insulated them It desensitized them from the needs of their brothers and sisters in the church. And in the last 500 years to today, since marriage has become increasingly idolized in the church, this problem has only worsened of marriage kind of creating a buffer to the needs of anybody outside of that little perimeter. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting that we don't have a higher responsibility to our spouse, if we have one, or to our kids, if we have any, than we do to the rest of our brothers and sisters here in the church. We do, right? Of course, within the nuclear family is where we have the most authority and responsibility. Absolutely. But in Western Christianity today, this division is taken to the extreme. We're beyond using our resources to meet the needs of our family. We will justify spending an endless amount on ourselves, our spouse, our kids, without ever even pausing to consider the needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ at all. Like, it's not even a question that pops into our minds. Maybe y'all are more righteous than me, right? But it's like, that's not even a thought, I make this money and it's spent on me and my spouse and my kids and that's it, man. And I'm not saying we mustn't ever spend any money on ourselves, right? All these caveats. But just think about the last five big purchases you made. Just the last five. It could be a gadget, a car, a boat, a house, a vacation, whatever you spent those stimulus checks on. Ask yourself with how many of those purchases, just the last five big ones, how many of those did it even occur to you whether you're spending those funds in the manner you were choosing to was good stewardship of the Lord's provision? Not to mention, could the money be spent a little differently Or could I get a little bit lesser model that's not so focused on impressing other people and have more left over to be a blessing to someone without my same last name? These are hard questions. And then as we engage in politics, right? 
in our sin, we will tend to favor policies that benefit the welfare of our nuclear family, right? Without ever even thinking at all about how it could affect the person in a different situation sitting in the next pew over, right? It's all about me and my little clan. And again, the church largely encourages this. As Jennings describes it, just as Ananias and Sapphira believed that they could lie to the Holy Spirit, couples now are often led to believe that they can do the same. Because too many churches have told couples that their life supersedes our life together as a body of Christ. I'm not blaming anybody, right? We've never known anything different. But I am saying it's a problem. And that it's going to negatively affect us and others, whether we know it or not. You know, we may say, well, so what, John? I mean, this is kind of an uncomfortable sermon. I'll be glad when it's over, but so what, right? I certainly expect that we would find it mind-boggling to live with any other mentality than what I've been describing. Right? I would imagine that pretty much all of our hearts are condemning the words that are coming out of my mouth right now, right? My gosh, I'm in this. He's gotta be confused about something here. But if 1 John is teaching that a greater sense of responsibility to one another is a mark of eternal life, and that is what it's teaching. Verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. If that's true, then we must believe that cultivating this, moving toward this paradigm, of greater love and concern for our brothers and sisters here would be better for us and for our marriages than whatever our mindset has been. Even if it means we own a few less shiny things. And I wonder if our singles and widows, divorcees would agree. The modern idolatry of the couple and family has led most Christians to unwittingly take a posture that if they were asked, am I my brother's keeper? They seem to say no day after day after day, time and again. What if we began asking God to help us, to show us how to begin answering, yes, I do believe I'm my brother's keeper. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.